to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. I'm Richard Harris. Welcome to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. It's going to be an awesome program today. Uh, my special guest is our honored colleague and friend, David Barton, uh, president of Wall Builders, um, author of many best-selling books. And he's known as America's historian because he has uh, really almost single-handedly rebuilt the understanding of America's Christian heritage in this nation. And uh, I'm just really thrilled to have David Barton joining us today. Dave, thanks for coming on the program. Richard, always great to be with you, brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. So uh, I know you stay busier than a one-armed paper hanger, Dave, but anytime we can get you uh, on this show, uh, we are thrilled. Next week, we're going to have the special privilege of seeing you in person because our Truth and Liberty Conference is happening. So for uh, all of those who are watching today, September 6th, 7th, excuse me, 7th, 8th, and 9th, so Thursday evening beginning the 7th, our, our annual conference starts, and it is going to be an amazing time. We've got a lineup that is just powerful. Uh, Power packed. So Dave is going to uh, be leading things off, and, and uh, Chad Connolly, uh, Andrew Womack. Uh, Pastor Lucas Miles, who I really like Lucas, he is a, a really bright guy, uh, a really rising voice in, in commentary on the church. Uh, Janet Folger Porter, Muhammad Faridi, uh, and myself, and Alex McFarland. And then we're going to have workshops and we're going to have um, just dozens of strategic partners there uh, in our exhibit hall. This is going to be an event you won't want to miss. So uh, it's going to be a great week. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, folks, about the conference is we will have a the premiere stage performance of a brand new um, dramatic musical called Overturned, written by Elizabeth Murin and Robert Murin. This show commemorates the reversal of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs versus Jackson, Dobbs versus Mississippi case last June of last year, and it is going to be an awesome show. I'm not just saying that. I got to sit down with Elizabeth and hear the whole plan of the whole story, and you know she's read. 15 books studying this. It is going to be moving. It's going to be powerful. Uh, you know, the, I, I, I'm sure Dave will agree with this, but the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was one of the greatest events in my lifetime, uh, politically, culturally, and everything else. Dave, wasn't that an amazing thing that happened last year? And uh, we're still actually trying to get our footing under that, but it has the potential to uh, really change our country forever. Yeah, it, it does. And it's interesting. Uh, not only with what happened with Roe v. Wade, I would say that there were really two major things that, that happened that can change the culture. One is we know that our documents talk about the fact that we have inalienable rights that come from God, government exists to protect those rights. And the first of those is life. Mm -hmm. And that literally meant life. That wasn't just rhetorical back 200 years ago. Um, the guys who wrote that, like Thomas Jefferson, actually passed abortion bans in their own state. So they were dealing with abortion at that time. They knew what it was. Technology was different, but the, the, the ceasing of a preborn life was there and they banned it. So that was great. But we've also seen a reversal on our ability to acknowledge God publicly. And that's where our documents start. They start with an open acknowledgement of God. And because there is a God, we protect life. 
And so particularly in the last three years, four decisions that have overturned what we call the lemon test, um, there are 7,300 court cases that were dumped by the Supreme Court in the last three years as being badly decided. And so the door is now open again, not only to preserve life, but to have prayer and Bible back in schools, to have the Ten Commandments posted again, to be able to do things we haven't done in years, have baccalaureates with prayer, have graduation prayer, have nativity scenes back up in public, have them at the state capitol. Those are all things that we can legally do again now. So I think the last two to three years from, from Dobbs to the God-honoring decisions have given us the opportunity to put America back on its original foundations of loving God and respecting his principles. And I think that's a great, great thing for us. Yeah, Dave, well, you would know as well or better than anyone. You're, uh, I don't know if it's your number one bestseller, but the, the one that I remember first hearing about that you wrote is called Original Intent. And uh, that book takes you for all the way from the beginning of the nation up until, uh, I don't know when you wrote it, in the 90s, I think, or 80s, but chronicles all the cases dealing with uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and shows how the Supreme Court uh, had thrown away the intent of the founders. And that's where why we found ourselves in this uh, secularized mess of modern America. But do you see the do you see that turning now with some of these Supreme Court cases? You see things turning around? Yeah, it, it definitely is turning around. Uh, I mean, we're coming up this week, uh, Coach Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, with the Bremerton decision. Uh, that the Supreme Court gave, they're, they're having a, a take a knee rally and they're asking coaches and teachers everywhere on the first football game this year to take a knee and pray. So we're back to having prayer on the football field at football games and this will be happening all over the nation. That's really, really significant. That's really remarkable. Uh, so we have seen uh, a lot of things change. We've seen since that decision I was mentioning, we, there's a bill working in Texas uh, to put the Ten Commandments back up in every single classroom in, in Texas, public school classroom. What a wonderful thing that would be to teach things like don't steal and don't kill and, and don't lie and commit perjury. Also, states like Arkansas and Oklahoma and so many others have picked that up. Uh, the superintendent of public education in Oklahoma is saying, hey, we want prayer back in our schools. I mean, just being God conscious, and I think, I think people look at little things like in God we trust or under God in the pledge and say, oh, those are such small things. No, they're not small things. If they were, the other side wouldn't be going after them. If under God didn't mean something, uh, they wouldn't be suing all the time to get rid of it or in God we trust or whatever. And I go to the, the book of Romans where in Romans 1, it, it talks about that when you stop being God conscious, your behavior changes. And it talks about the fact that because they did not like to retain God in their consciousness, God gave them over to depraved things and they started doing all sorts of things they shouldn't have done. Their behavior goes downhill. Mm -hmm. And so strictly being God conscious is a huge thing for the nation. When people Absolutely. start thinking about God and there is a God and oh my, I, I might be accountable to him and, and, and I, I might have to answer for my behavior everything changes. Mm -hmm. So those are not small things that happen. I think that's the first step toward becoming God-fearing. And when you become God-fearing, you have a completely different culture and behavior. 
there's a lot of things people will not do if they're aware that there is a God and he does hold them accountable. So I, I look at what's happening with this take a knee movement with Joe Kennedy that is so good because kids all over the nation, people in the stands all over the nation, uh, teams on both sides, they'll see people honoring God. And they, well, you know, maybe that's a good thing. And, and I think it'll lead people in that direction. And that's, that's the way the country was designed, was that God-fearing thing. Um, I, I find it interesting that in early indictments, and, and you mentioned how we did all this research back in, in religion in America, but in early indictments of states, it, it's really fun to read the indictments because it would say things like, Joe Smith, not having the fear of God before his eyes, did mm. commit robbery or burglary or murder or whatever. And they took it back to the fact, look, because you didn't fear God, your behavior was really bad and it's hurting the culture because of that. So I, I think it's massive to be able to get back to being God conscious. Um, that's where the Declaration of Independence started before it even talked about inalienable rights like life, liberty, mm -hmm. pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident, all men are created. They're endowed by their creator. That's right. So that's where everything started. And I think that's a healthy, healthy place for us to be. And what's going to happen in the next few weeks will be exercises returning to public life that we haven't seen in a decade or two or three. You're, you're, you're talking about the Joe Kennedy uh, take a knee campaign. Yes, right? that's right. So, yes, sir. Uh, so, Dave, yeah, I've often wondered, you know, how could our Supreme Court look at the Declaration of Independence, which says explicitly that our, all of our rights are, uh, come from our Creator, you know, an express reference to God. It's so, and it's so uh, obvious that it's self-evident, and yet at the same time say that we can't, we, we can't teach our children in our public schools uh, that God exists or, or pray to God or have the Ten Commandments. It seems so contradictory. And, and, you know, the Bible says that if we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. And isn't that what we're experiencing now in America? Pretty much full fruit, ripe fruit on the tree from the seeds that have been sown since prayer was taken out of schools. Yeah, that, that God conscious is really important. And, and you mentioned even the Ten Commandments. Isn't it ironic that in the U.S. Supreme Court where they struck down the Ten Commandments, that in that court are more than 52 depictions of the Ten Commandments in the U.S. Supreme Court? They, they not only have the, the engravings in the door and over the, the Chief Justice's, and over the court's head, but outside on, on the entrance coming in, but even the iron, the uh, br brass railing that separates the Supreme Court bar from the Supreme Court audience, they have this bronze latticework. And every time that latticework crosses, there's, a, there's an emblem there of the Ten Commandments. And, mm -hmm. and it's all over the court. And they're saying, you know, this is what's all over the court, but we can't let a kid see that. That's unconstitutional. Yeah. Wait a minute. You can't let a kid see what you've got in the Supreme Court 50 plus times? Are you kidding me? There was a, a, a good friend of mine was in Illinois and he was working on um, a number of years ago bringing a lawsuit against the court on behalf of juveniles. And he worked with a lot of juvenile centers and juvenile detention centers, et cetera. And he was bringing that case on behalf of those juveniles who said, we hold the government accountable for us being in jail because you wouldn't let us see things like don't steal and don't kill, and you're throwing us in jail for violating things you wouldn't let us see. And I thought, that's a great, that's a great <laughs> point. You know, these yeah. kids are in jail for doing things you wouldn't let them see. And if, if you go back, there was a movie that came out in the 1950s called The Ten Commandments. Cecil mm -hmm. B. DeMille did that movie, won all sorts of Academy Awards, great movie. 
even to this day, with millions of movies, that's still the number seven uh, blockbuster of all time, box office-wise, and that's back in the 50s. So wow. there's a, and the movie came about, a, a lot of it came about because uh, Cecil B. DeMille, who was called the father of the biblical epic, he was, he really felt like God put him in Hollywood. He started Paramount Studios, God put him in Hollywood to do these massive movies showing the greatness of the Bible. And so he got connected with the judge in Minnesota called Judge Rugemer, and they were talking about the Ten Commandments. And, and Judge Rugemer had a juvenile case come to his court where there was a young man who had stolen a vehicle. He went out wild with his vehicle. He injured a man. It happened to be a priest that he injured. And so they bring this kid in the court for the sentencing. And the judge, this is back in the 40s, the judge looked at this kid and said, I sentence you to live by the Ten Commandments. And this kid very genuinely looked at him and said, what are the Ten Commandments? Yeah. And he mm -hmm. said, you don't know what the Ten, this is in the 40s, you don't know what the Ten Commandments are? So he got a, a minister and connected him with this kid. The minister taught him the Ten Commandments. The kid memorized them, learned them. He came back to the judge a couple of years later. He said, my life is so different. He said, I cannot thank you enough for the Ten Commandments. He became a model citizen. And so as a result of that, Judge Rugemer and the Fraternal Order of Eagles put up more than 10,000 copies of the Ten Commandments in classrooms across America. And it was on the premise that, you know, if you live by the Ten Commandments, you will make a very good citizen and the whole nation will be better off for it. So 10,000 copies were in the schools and then the movie comes out and then they put up 180 monuments. Every state capital had monuments of the Ten Commandments. And the court says, we're not going to let kids in school say, and by the way, I, I have the actual copy of the Ten Commandments that went to the Supreme Court in 1980 when the Supreme Court said you can't use the Ten Commandments in school anymore. Grab this, the, the Ten Commandments, so don't kill, don't steal, don't commit mm -hmm. perjury. The, those Ten Commandments hung in, in the hallways of Kentucky schools, in the hallways, not in the classes. So if you're going down the hallway, you can see the Ten Commandments, or you can see a picture of Cape, Ladder, Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, or you can see a horse running across a pasture or a beautiful vase of flowers. If you want to go look at it, you can. Just walk up to it. So students could walk up and read the Ten Commandments there on the wall if they wanted to, but if they wanted to keep trucking, that's fine too. And the Supreme Court said that if students were to see a copy of the Ten Commandments, they might be induced to read the Ten Commandments. And it said, and if they were to read the Ten Commandments, they might respect, obey the Ten Commandments, and that would be unconstitutional. Wait a minute. Wow. It's unconstitutional for me to read something because if I read it, I might think about it. If I think about it, it might change my behavior, and that would be unconstitutional. That was the Supreme Court decision, Stone v. Graham. It's the craziest wording I've ever seen in a Supreme mm -hmm. Court decision. So I, I'm loving the fact that we're back to the point now where we can put the Ten Commandments back in schools. The court has said, hey, all, the, all that previous stuff for the last 50 years was all wrongly decided, shouldn't have been decided. I, I see the Ten Commandments as one of the many ways we have of becoming God conscious again and thus really elevating the nation. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. Um, well, so let me just say this to everybody who's watching today. This is a live calling show. If you've got questions for Dave Barton, uh, call in. We want to hear from you. The number is on the screen. It's 
2341, uh, how many times in life do you get an opportunity to ask David Barton a question? So we'd love to hear from you. Call in. The lines are open. Uh, David Barton, America's historian. Dave, I, uh, I think one of the, as, as I read the uh, Dobbs case, that reversed Roe versus Wade. Um, and then if you if you go back further and you read the Bladensburg War Memorial case and mm -hmm. some of these others that now one is is uh, you know the religion clauses, the other one is is abortion, but they're both and and the the Dobbs case even more clearly, they're they're endorsing original intent. In other words, they're saying the, uh, we can't we can't just make the law up. We have to look at what uh, the original intent uh, of the founders was and, and, the, and the historical practices of the United States. Um, and so uh, if, if they are serious about that and they hold to it, um, that seems to me is going to, has the potential to rework the foundation of constitutional jurisprudence in America. Is that what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. The fact that the court is going back to actually reading the Constitution, man, that is really novel. And not yeah. only are they reading it, they actually like it and they're trying to uphold it. And so what the court is doing over the last several years is saying, look, the Constitution doesn't talk about this, so we're checking out of it. That's up to the states, which was part of the Dobbs decision. Now, I, I think I could argue that from the founding fathers' perspective, since they dealt with abortion back then and had laws on it, that that was in their thinking when they were talking about the right to life and, and yeah. that being an inalienable right. But if, even if you want to say that wasn't it, you still go to the point where the Constitution says, here's the 17 things the federal government can do. Mm -hmm. These are the 17, and everything else belongs to the states. And that is approach they took on, on abortion. It's not whether it's morally right or morally wrong. It's we don't have the authority to rule on that. We're the federal government. That doesn't belong to us. That's not in the Constitution. Therefore, the states get to do that. Now, with that, that also opens up the possibility of the return of marriage issues because 32 states had said, hey, marriage between a man and a woman. And then the Supreme Court with Justice Kennedy said, no, 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 you've all got that wrong. We'll tell you what your values are. No, if it's not mm -hmm. in the Constitution, the federal government doesn't get to deal in that area. And so I've watched them not only do that, but I've watched them strike down regulatory orders saying, wait a minute. The Constitution says laws have to come through Congress, not through regulatory agencies. And so they're striking down regulatory mandates that are national mandates saying this wasn't done constitutionally. You, you can't do this. They're doing it in all sorts of areas, not just the, the areas of values of religious liberty and abortion, et cetera, but even in the power and the scope of, of governments, what governments can do, even what courts can do, what courts can rule on. They're pulling their own courts back in and saying, wait a minute, you can't issue a ruling on that. That's not in the Constitution. We're mm -hmm. upholding the Constitution. So we're seeing at the judicial level, we're seeing a shrinking of the federal government at the, at the judicial level. Now, we're not yeah. seeing it yet at the governmental elected level because that thing is expanding and growing. And, and whether it's the central bank digital currency or whether it's ESG or whether it's climate change or whatever, they're growing the government big time in the areas they shouldn't be. But when it gets to the courts, the courts are pulling it in and saying, wait a minute, you can't do that. So I'm loving that. All, all this to answer your question, Richard, I'm, I'm loving the fact that we finally have a court that's actually reading the Constitution. Yeah. And by the way, not only are they reading it, but it, we like these religious liberty decisions. We had a 9-0 religious liberty decision in, in Boston versus Shirtliff 
where that even the liberals on the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, Boston, you don't want to fly a Christian flag just because it's Christian and you're flying 217 other flags? No, no, no. You have to fly a Christian flag if someone offers a 9-0 decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's remarkable that even the liberals were telling Boston that they need to fly a Christian flag if, if they're going to fly everybody else's flag. So yeah. we're, we're to a point where even the liberals are starting to read the Constitution, but certainly the conservatives are doing a good job of reading the Constitution, or a better job than we've seen in decades of reading the Constitution and following it. Well, you know, this this court, uh, three of those justices were appointed by Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, that I think is probably whether he's reelected or not, uh, whether he wins this election, uh, that's his enduring legacy uh, is what he did to the Supreme Court. It's just amazing. But let's talk about Trump for a second, David. Um, So last week we had the first round of debates amongst uh, the Republican candidates, and Donald Trump was not there. So a big notable absence. Uh, The front runner in every poll right now on the Republican side is Donald Trump by a huge margin. And he decided to give an interview to Tucker Carlson. Uh, First question, why did he do that? And was that the right move for him? Well, for, for him, it's the right move. It's not necessarily the right move for voters. Um, but for him, when you're in the number one position, all you can do is stumble and fall or mm-hmm. remain there. And so what you do is you avoid opportunities to stumble and fall, which is getting in a debate where someone might get into your skin, as was the case in the first debate he had with Biden, where that he, Biden got under his skin and he looked really bad in that debate. Mm-hmm. So when you're in a setting where it's you and one other person, then you don't have the challenge. You don't have people coming at you and trying to irritate you or trying to hit you for policies you had that they didn't like or whatever. So he's in a very commanding position by not appearing to that. He did not appear at the one in Iowa uh, for the family leader, which was much more of a family debate that all the other candidates were there and they dealt with a lot more of the conservative kind of pro-family issues. Uh, didn't appear at the debate here, and he probably will continue not to appear as long as he's in a front leader position. He also can control his own media better by just having a one-on-one interview. And even though Tucker Carlson asked him some pretty hard questions, he still is just one-on-one. And right. so that's, for him, uh, strategically, that's a good policy to follow because that keeps him at that top level a lot longer. Um, now, is it better for the voters? Probably not. Voters would like to see reactions and, and, and interactions and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But politically, it was probably the right thing to do. Well, so um, uh, where what's going on with all these uh, criminal charges against Trump? There's, the, the number is impossible to even keep track of now in terms of counts in the four different sets of indictments. and. Uh, it's incredible. Never, I, th- I think you'd agree that there's never been anything quite like this in American history where the, the United States government, uh, the, the president and his Justice Department go after their leading political opponent, opponent like this. Is, do you, are, the, are the experts saying that Trump is likely to end up convicted in one or more of these cases? And if that happens, is he going to be able to stay on the ballot? What we have with this is a real problem in the sense that um, it was called over-criminalization a number of years ago. We were working on this with trying to get a change at the Supreme Court. Go back to what the scripture says, that the letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the law brings life. Mm. And that's really letter of the law, spirit of the law. Spirit of the law is the intent of the law. 
Yeah. If you take a law away from its intent and read it on its face without any background, without any perspective, you can abuse that law and it becomes a very heavy hammer. And so that was the problem that they had in the scriptures that they got away from the spirit of the law, why God gave it, and they were doing the letter of the law, which brought death spiritually, et cetera. So that's what prosecutors are doing now. They're taking laws that were never designed for this situation. They're twisting their face and contorting their body in such a way that if they hold their head just right, they could read the law and maybe mean this. And so they're taking the letter of the law, applying it to things that were never intended, never designed for it to be applied which means when you do that, you're much more likely to get a conviction because as you present that case, and, and recall that these indictments are coming down in very, very blue areas that have an extremely high dislike for Trump. And Americans right now no longer have the moral values to be able to say, I'm going to do what's right regardless of how it turns out. They're now picking winners. I want my side to win. I hate Trump. My side's got to win. I don't care what happens. He's got to lose. And right. so we're polarized, we're weaponized, we're picking winners and losers rather than doing justice. We're not doing justice to law. Yeah. So the fact that he has a, a, a jury in, in uh, Atlanta is better than having a jury in San Francisco. 20% um, of Atlanta is Republican, so you can have a hung jury, you can, you can have a mistrial, but it's still gonna be really hard because they're trying yeah. these things in cities that are inherently hateful toward him. It's pretty hard to get justice. They're not doing a change of venue. Now, if Trump's gets moved to the federal court, then that's a whole different consideration. I think at the federal court, he's got a good chance of prevailing. Uh, I think federal judges will go more to the spirit of the law, which is what they've been doing under this new Supreme Court. So I think good chance he gets convicted. But remember, the Constitution only says he can't hold office if he's impeached and if the Congress Im imposes on him uh, a prohibition from all future offices, what the Constitution calls uh, places of trust and honor. So if he's if he's a felon, if, if he's misdemeanor, and he can run for president, he's not prohibited by the Constitution from doing that. He's only prohibited if he gets impeached and if the impeachment penalty they impose says you can't hold any future office. And that's not going to happen. So he can be on the ballot. That's not going to be a problem. So he could get convicted in all of these cases. Yes and um, actually still win, theoretically, and be sworn in as president, would he, uh, the, the, where my brain stops is, uh, okay, is he, gonna, is he gonna be president from jail? Uh, what happens to the sentence if the sentence hasn't been fulfilled yet and inauguration day comes? I mean, this is crazy land. Uh, is cr how is this gonna work? Yeah, this is crazy land, and there's no other precedent um, and by the way, if if we start using this as precedent, there's a whole lot of political people in the House and Senate that are going to be in jail, too. Sure. If, if this is the new standard, uh, you know, Fannie Willis, uh, she'll be there as well because they'll take some things she said in her in, in her campaign and, and, and nail her for things because she had a clear opinion on the 2020 election and what happened. And, and so if you're, if you're going to start twisting it that way and make the law about getting you rather than getting justice, um, mm -hmm. they've started a precedent that they will not like, and yeah. it will be used against them. So uh, I, I think that, that probably at some point, I mean, this is all trailblazing right now, but this is where the yeah, Bible right, says right. if you roll a stone up a hill, it's going to roll back on you. If you yeah. dig a hole, you're going to fall in it. Mm -hmm. This is going to come back to bite them in a way that they never imagined. They're going to go, yeah, we got the guy, 
and then you can say, oh, but wait a minute, we started something that can now be used against us. And that's where I think reality comes out. And I think some of them are starting to see that at this point, that if this goes through and he gets convicted for criminal behavior because of what he said, that's a real problem. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, so is there any chance that the Supreme Court might intervene in these real quick? We've got about 30 seconds left. Well, the Supreme Court has done a great job of not taking cases where they don't have federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, there are some statutes that can move this into federal court as a federal office holder. And if they do, the question is, will they then throw out a criminal indictment at a lower level from the federal position, not unless they can find it violates a federal law? And, if, and, and this court, the Supreme Court, has done a better job of keeping their nose out of state issues than any court I've seen in my lifetime. And I don't think they're going to intervene just because it's the president unless there is a federal statute that gives them that authority. Frankly, I haven't looked to see if there is a statute like that. But I can guarantee you they're about to find out because this is getting appealed through the federal courts. And right now, the early rulings from the early judges on some of the other appeals going up out of these 1920 defendants, uh, the federal judges are ruling more in the favor of those who have federal standing. So we'll see what happens. That could be a good sign for Trump. But the question is, can they get it in the federal courts? Yeah, that's going to be real interesting to watch. Well, we've come up uh, past our break slot. So here, we're going to take about 90 seconds, uh, share some information with you. And I'll be right back after that with David Barton here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Well, hey, everybody, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Richard Harris, and our special guest today is the one and only David Barton. So, Dave, great to be back with you now. And we were in the middle of talking about this whole situation with Donald Trump. It truly is uncharted territory for the nation. And, um, you know, I'm just... I'm just curious, uh, you know, this scenario, the possibility of the leading Republican candidate for president being 
actually on trial in the middle of a campaign and possibly even being convicted. Now, um, let, some of these charges that have been made against him, now, I, th I think it's all bogus, but some of them are felony charges. And like you said, they're in blue areas like Fulton County, Georgia, you know, in, uh, in Atlanta area, uh, Manhattan, Washington, D.C. I mean, some of the bluest areas in the country. And so if he gets convicted um, of even a felony, the, the qualifications to be president of the United States are determined by the Constitution, not state law, right? And so the Constitution doesn't prohibit felons from serving, uh, fr from being elected, right? So you're saying that the Congress would then, the only remedy would be they would have to then impeach him after he's elected. Uh, mm -hmm. And if it's a Republican Congress or even close to it, that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. If they impeach him after he's elected, now we're back to the thing. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you guys were against overturning the will of the people with <laughs> intervention. You know, that's exactly what what their argument was four years ago. Yep. And you don't overturn the vote of the people through court cases. And Trump went to court to overturn the vote of the people with the Biden stuff. Now they're they're doing exactly. And that goes back to Romans 2.21, where it says, Thou that accuses another accuses thine own self also. Mm -hmm. People often do what they accuse others of. They don't like it in others, but it's okay for them to do. And that's where the Democrats will find themselves if they try to do that. But I don't think there's any chance, you know, depending on how this all turns out, but based on what we know right now, I don't think there's any chance that you would get two-thirds to convict and impeach and then get two-thirds to add the additional prohibition of any future offices. And, mm. and that would be, and that's a separate, that's a separate step in the impeachment process. One is to impeach and remove from office. The second is to put a prohibition on there that you can't hold office again. Yeah. Um, that would be really, really difficult unless this next election goes in ways that nobody foresees. If the Democrats, if Trump won and Democrats suddenly got a supermajority in the House and the Senate, Maybe they get it done, but it makes no sense that Trump would win an election and then lose the House and the Senate at such a level. I just don't think it can happen practically. Well, folks, so uh, you're watching the Truth and Liberty Live Cullen Show. My guest today is David Barton, and uh, we are we would love to field your questions. Just call in at 719-619-2341. They can be Bible questions, as you can tell already. Dave Barton knows his Bible, uh, and, or they can be history or politics or anything like that. So we would love to hear from you today. Um, so, uh, Dave, I'm curious about something else, just shifting gears off of Donald Trump for a second. Um, I've been hearing more and more uh, the last uh, you know, eight, nine months of a phrase that I keep hearing in the news called Christian nationalism. It seems like here at Truth and Liberty, they're throwing that muck at us every day in the left-wing newspapers, and I'm sure you get your fair uh, share of that. I just want to throw this uh, up there for you to comment on. What is this thing, this tag of Christian nationalism? It seems like it's a uh, um, a thinly veiled attempt to make Christians look like they're Nazis. What, am I missing something here? No, you're not. And, and this is one of the best tactics out there is to use mockery, derision, mockery, and fear. Uh, if you recall back 20 years ago, all the late night stuff, John Stewart, et cetera, were mocking the right wing, mocking these crazy people on the right, mocking. And then suddenly within 20 years, everybody doesn't want to be on the right at all. Mm. And right used to be a very good position. Ronald Reagan, that was mainstream right, et cetera. So mockery is what they, they use and fear is what they use. So if 
Christians are a huge influence in the election, which they always have been, as you're looking, roughly two-thirds of the nation professes Christianity. And if Christians were to go vote their values, well, that means most progressive things would not be able to survive. That means you would have school choice in most states. It means all the gender confusion, gender mutilation stuff that's going on would not be going on if Christians voted their values, and they understand that. So if they want to get their agenda through, they've got to get Christians out of the process. One way you do that is by creating fear, creating criticism, and using mockery. And Christian nationalism, the way they mean that is, oh, these Christians want to establish a theocracy. They, they want it back like it was with the Ayatollah in Iran, that they can chop off your hand. For, and, and so what, is, what does Christian nationalism mean? What, well, the tone is that these are guys that are theocrats and they want to cram religion down your throat. No, that's not what it is. See, they don't ever give definitions. They just start throwing terms out and they give the meanings they want. So Christian nationalism, what's happened is people say, oh, that means being a Christian patriot. Oh, we can't do that. And so you're seeing a lot of churches take American flags out of their churches because they don't want to be Christian nationalists. Now, time out, just, just for a minute. Christian nationalist, it just means being patriotic. Should Christians be patriotic? If you go back to Jeremiah 29, 19, the scripture says, you remember after Israel had fallen and God put them in captivity in Babylon because they kept disobeying him. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you go to Babylon for a period of time, 70 years, then you'll come back, Nehemiah, rebuild the walls. But God specifically told him the prophet Jeremiah said, when you get to Babylon, I'm sending you into captivity, but when you get there, I want you to seek the good of Babylon, seek the yeah. good of the nation where I put you, even if it's in captivity, because if it goes well for that nation, it will go well for you. Hmm. So he's saying, you're going into Babylon, but I want you to be patriotic when you're there. I, I, I want you to do everything you can to help Babylon succeed, help them prosper. I want you to, well, why would we not want that for America? Because if it goes well for America, it goes well for every citizen in America. How's it going to go well for America? Well. We love to sing the song, God Bless America, but if we really want God Bless America, we got to give him something to work with. It's hard for him to bless something he absolutely opposes. And the best way to give him something to work with is to have policies he can bless. He's not going to bless a, a, a general mutilation policy or a pro-abortion policy. Well, the only way you're going to get the other policies is for Christians to be involved and vote those policies in. And God says, now I can bless that. Oh, you're for mm -hmm. Israel? I, I, I can bless that. And so... At some point, they're saying, we need Christians out of politics. We, we want it to be Christian nationally. We want to scare you out of this thing, and that lets their agenda go forward. So go back to the word patriotism for a minute. Patriotism means, by definition in Latin, love of one's country. Mm -hmm. Should a Christian have a love for his country? Absolutely. Should have a country. For, and that's what you'll find with every missionary. If you're, a mission, if you're an American missionary to France, you love France. That's, it's mm -hmm. in your heart. You want to go help those people. If you're a missionary to Mexico or Australia or Canada, wherever, wherever God sends you, he puts a love in your heart for that country, and you always want the best for it. So the concept of patriotism means you, you love something. You, you want the best for it. Think about loving your family. If you love your family, what, what will you do? You'll sacrifice for it. You'll work for it. You'll always, it doesn't mean they're perfect. You got kids and spouses that may not be perfect, but you're always working to make it better. When you love your country, if you're patriotic, you want what's good for it. You want it to be better. You want to work for what's better. So this whole Christian nationalism, also dominionism is another word they use. Yeah. 
It's designed to take Christians that don't think and get them to turn against their country. Oh, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not a citizen of earth. God put you here. And he said, occupy till I come. So while here, give them something to bless. That's because we get involved. So this is a very effective tool of the left to get Christians to step out of the process, to self-censor, to self-limit, to self-eliminate, so that it makes it much easier for them to go forward. You mean to tell me that they're not secular nationalists? How come Mm -hmm. we don't make fun of secular nationalism or progressive nationalism or liberal nationalism or anything else? What's wrong with being a Christian nationalist? Everybody else is a nationalist, so Christians don't get to have a place at the table. So just ignore that definition. It is, it is absolutely a tool designed by the enemy to get us out and make it easier for them to move their anti-God agenda forward. Oh, I love it. That's excellent. Uh, well, we've got uh, some calls on the line now, and I do want to transition to those, Dave, if you'll help me out here. So I'd like to first go to Frank from Missouri. Uh, Frank's one of our regulars. Frank, we appreciate you calling in today. How are you, brother? I'm I'm doing great. Thank you so much uh, for, for having me. Uh, and I just want to say thank you, to Brother David Barton, and and, and to you, uh, Brother Richard, and and to all of the all of the people that are are on the cutting edge of this uh, uh, of our, our history of 250 years. The, the privilege of being able to think through 250 years. So, anyways, I won't get to. Uh, I'm fired up about it. I just want to ask the, the question that's been given me to about the Supreme Court. Does it uh, uh, does it have uh, uh, the uh, uh, right to uh, uh, change uh, or the, the mandates for vaccines and masks? And does it have a right to to, to interfere in uh, in those decisions uh, about vaccines and masks? I could go into my own personal thing, but uh, I'm not. I don't think I'm supposed to. But uh, you know, okay. some of the stupid. Questions, we got you, Frank. I think we got it down. And so, Dave, what do you think? Does the Supreme Court have the power to intervene in masks mandates and vaccine you know, mandates? Intervening in mask mandates. The the reason they have intervened most regularly to this point has been over conscience issues, and that's because the federal constitution gives them the authority to uphold free exercise of religion. And so whether it be the Navy SEALs, the military groups, the 1,400, uh, 14,000 in the Army, et cetera, they said, hey, I won't take the vaccination because it violates my religious conscience. I don't, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3, et cetera, I can't do this. The court has stepped in and said, hey, you can't cause people to violate their religious conscience. So that's where we see the most intervention by the court. Now, the other places we see intervention is when a governor gets involved and the governor violates his own laws to do that. So if if a state charter, state constitution allows a governor to impose a vaccine through an emergency mandate, the courts are basically saying, hey, that's a state constitution. That's not our jurisdiction. You can do that. But when that state constitution violates the federal constitution, that's where they're stepping in. So the court by itself is not going to strike down all mandates just because of their because you can have emergency mandates because the state constitutions often allow that. But when the state constitutional mandate violates a federal mandate like protecting the rights of conscience, that's where the courts do get involved. So we've seen the most striking down of mandates when they started targeting churches or started targeting people of faith or started targeting Christian schools or whatever. And that's where we've seen church after church after church win on these mandates. 
citizens overall aren't necessarily winning on them because it's got to be that federal area and that comes under religious conscience. So that's what we're seeing most often to answer that question, Frank. Excellent. Yeah, um, the only other thing that I heard of was the when Biden tried to make it uh, mandatory uh, on through OSHA, you know, yeah. on all employers of over 20 employees and so on. And the court said you didn't, the statute didn't authorize that. And so that was but another example of where they, they, they blocked them there. But uh, yeah, let's yeah, hope and that. Richard, um, that's a great point because the federal law did not authorize Biden to do what he did. And mm -hmm. federal law, the Constitution establishes the process by which that's made, and it's made through the Congress, through the House and the Senate. And that's a great point. That's an, another example of the Supreme Court upholding the Constitution. Right. Had the House and the Senate given him that authority, he prob they probably would have left it alone. But yep. because he did it unilaterally without the authority from the House or Senate, uh, that's another great example of where this court is, is really trying to follow the Constitution even if it leads to places they don't want to be, like they may all oppose the mandate. I don't know. But they probably would have held it up if it had gone through the House and Senate in a proper legislative manner and had yeah. not violated rights of conscience or something else. Great point, gotcha. Richard. Well, and our, so we've got uh, several other callers. Let's go to the next one. I'd like to go to Jennifer from New York. And Jennifer, uh, my notes here say you're a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries and Truth and Liberty. So thank you so much for your support. What's your question today for Dave Barton? Thank you. Thank you. So uh, my question for uh, both of you guys, uh, you know, how how exactly can we or how should we be voting in this next election? Should we be doing early voting? Should should we do mail-in? What, what, what do we do? So thanks so much. Uh, yeah. So are you, uh, Jennifer, are you kind of asking um, how do we make sure our vote is counted and that it's a fair process or, um, or what are you, why are you asking about whether we should do early versus in person? Right. How can we have a fair election? You know, should we? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm getting a feedback from you guys in here. So. Okay. Well, we got it now. Dave, what do you think? Um, the answer to that first, you have to step back to the Constitution, and the Constitution authorizes states to give the time, places, and manners of elections. So there are 50 different ways to do elections because the Constitution allows 50 different ways. So within that framework, you got to see what your state does and state allows. Now, here's some general guidelines. And, and by the way, going back to 2020, all the fiasco of 2020, um, we, we have a legislative network at Wall Builders called Pro Family Legislative Network. And we work with about a thousand state legislators over all 50 states. Last year, we monitored 157,000 pieces of state legislation. So we can pretty much tell you what's going on in most areas. And last year, 2,241 pieces of legislation were introduced to have election reform, to tighten up elections, make it harder to cheat, et cetera. Uh, now, out of that, about 200 got passed. A lot of those did not get passed. But nonetheless, there are about 200 bills that will make it harder to cheat, or they're designed to make it harder to cheat. And you always want hard to cheat. You, you want it easy to vote, hard to cheat. So there's a number of states that have done that. Now, did the blue states do that? Not very much, not that you would notice. However, even in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, the court stepped in and said, hey, what you did in 2020 violated state law. You, you can't let a local official decide to extend the hours for, for voting or change the provisions. The legislature has to do that. So 
what's happened since 2020, there has been a lot of tightening up of, uh, of actually voter security. It's better than it was in 2020 for sure. Is it where it needs to be? No, not by a long shot, because as long as you have people involved, there will always be cheating, always. Uh, we can go back to the first mail-in ballot election was 1864. It was Abraham Lincoln versus George B. McClellan. 1864, the Democrats said, we need mail-in ballots, and they did that, and that's where your first voter convictions were for mail-in ballots. Mail-in <laughs> ballots turned out to be a fraudulent scheme where they said, we got, New York said, we've got so many guys fighting the Civil War, they need to be able to vote and mail in their ballots. Well, what they did was they created assembly lines where people voted in the name of the soldiers. Soldier never even got the ballot, but somebody voted for them, they sent it back to New York, and it turned into a big prosecution afterwards. It was just a big scheme. So mail-in ballots tend to be not the way to go, but there's several states that only do mail-in ballots. So if you're in a state that only does mail-in ballots, you're stuck with that. One of the things that's a, a good thing to do is vote early, because what happened in the last election, a whole lot of people went to vote on election day and said, oh, you've already voted. No, I haven't. I'm here to vote now. No, no, you voted three weeks ago in early vote. No, I didn't vote. You need to be the first one to vote before fraudulent votes can be cast in your name. And some people like waiting until the day of, but with what's happened in the last election cycle with so many people showing up at the polls on election day, finding out they've already voted and their vote doesn't count, they have to cast what's called a provisional vote. And then somebody has to decide of the two, which one's gonna make it. And they sometimes throw out both of them. So getting, getting not, not doing mail by ballot, trying to show up in person, trying to show up early, if it's early voting, trying to get there early, make sure you're the first one to vote. Those are things that help. The other thing that helps is get involved in local county groups. Uh, we've seen this, um, I saw a great example in Virginia, it's now going in, in, in Michigan and other places where the church groups are saying, hey, let's, let's check the voter rolls. And they're simply taking the rolls in their precincts, their own precincts, which may be a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand, and checking for them. And, and, and Chad, um, Chad Connolly with Faith Wins has a, a great approach to this, but tell, tell Sunday school classes, hey, check the voter rolls and look for two things. Look for any address where more than six people are at that address and check and make sure there really are six voters at an address. Um, one, one of the groups in, in Virginia found an address with 17 voters registered to vote at that address. Uh, what's that? Well, it may be a really big house. They went and looked. It was an empty pasture. They had not a single structure on the pasture. And 17 people were voting out of that pasture? No, that, that's voter fraud. The other thing is look for people who are over 100 years old that are still voting. Not that people can't be over 100 years old, but that's a good red flag. So in Michigan, found a guy that voted twice in 2020. He was born in 1850. <laughs> 170 years old, he's still voting twice? Yeah. So those are things that local groups can find and get those names pulled off the voter roll. The, the fewer bad names you have on the voter roll, the less cheating can be done. So if cheating is going to be done like it was with this guy named Jason Daniels, born in 1850, Jason Daniels voted twice in 2020. How did he do that? He's been dead for 100 years. If he didn't have him on the voter rolls, he couldn't have voted. So that's something else that churches and Christian groups can do is just take your local precinct voter roll. You can get access to it. It's public record. You can go through and do quick checks. Uh, in Michigan, one of the churches did a check, and the first 200 
names on the voter roll there in that precinct in Michigan, they found obituaries for 63 people out of the first 200. So wow. 63 people are dead and we have obituaries and they're still voting. That's not good. So this is where every citizen can do something to make a difference. Local churches, local groups can do it. You don't have to wait for the state legislature to get it all fixed because they'll never get it all fixed. They can tighten it down, but we can all contribute to, to, to stopping election fraud. So those are some ideas. The, uh, what a great answer. Uh, Dave, you know, um, the, uh, another reason what happened in, in last year, I noticed the, the word was, okay, vote on election day. Don't go and vote early. Don't turn in your mail-in ballot. Vote in person. Wait till election day. And, and uh, so some of the points you were making about that, I, I hadn't heard the, all of that. But one thing I did hear was um, there are people, there are organizations like Truth and Liberty and others where we're watching the rolls and we're seeing who's voting. And when people haven't, good conservatives haven't voted yet, we send them a text, right? Yeah. And that costs money. And uh, you only have so many dollars to go around. And if you're, uh, if you intend to vote and don't, then, you know, money is being spent to turn out your vote when it really should, doesn't need, we'd rather spend it somewhere else to get uh, uh, people who don't vote regularly. So go ahead and get that ballot in. I think that's the right answer for, for multiple reasons. So excellent response there. Um, you know, I have a question for you, Dave, though. We've got five minutes left in this segment, but I wanna ask you your opinion on this. And this is a, a little bit of a softball, a little bit partisan, but why do Democrats seem to not want election reform? I mean, what's, what's wrong with, uh, blue states want to tight, don't wanna tighten the election rules? Is this, uh, are Democrats inherently corrupt or is there some philosophical difference here? Um, I wanna be careful how I say this. I'm gonna speak in broad generalizations. There's exceptions to every rule. Generally, the Democrat party is a very secular party. You may recall the last two platforms they've done, they had debates on taking the word God completely out, didn't even want the word God in their platform. Um, the, the, the televised stuff of that is there. They tend to be very secular. And, and the more secular you are, the less God-fearing you are, which means the less restraints you have on your behavior. So if there is no God, then everything is right now, and the end does justify the means, the Machiavellian thing that then justifies the means. And if there is no God, then winning is the greatest thing that can happen in my life. If there is a God, winning is a good thing. Losing is not a good thing, but I'm still going to do what's right, win or lose. If I lose doing what's right, I'll lose doing what's right, but I'm not going to break the rules just to win. Democrats don't have that moral restraint of God fearing one day I'm going to account to God. He's going to say, why did you cheat in that election? If you don't believe that, then why not cheat in an election? Mm -hmm. So you have less moral restraints, which means the end does justify the means, which means you're willing to do more things to make sure your side wins. You win at all costs. And so that's where you're going to find more resistance to these, these rules that would protect the vote. Oh, no, you're trying to disenfranchise people. No, it's when you protect the vote, it makes it harder for us to win. Look at uh, what happened with DeSantis. DeSantis, when he ran uh, four years ago for governor, won by one-tenth of one percent of a point. Right after he got in office, they went through and they scrubbed and they cleaned up their election laws. They got rid of uh, election officials like in Broward County who kept finding votes after they were cast. 
And after they clean up the rolls, this election he won by 16 points or 18 mm -hmm. points, whatever. It wasn't even close. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, this election, we had the, the national results in, and um, they were one of the first states to report. And usually Florida is one of the last states to report. Mm -hmm. So cleaning up voter rolls makes elections much worse for Democrats generally. Um, and, and so I, I just go to that that position they have that's much more secular, much less God-fearing, much more the end justifies the means, and that's why they fight these election laws. Great, great and That's answer. an oversimplification for sure, no, and I'm no. not imputing that to every Democrat that's out there, not by a long shot, but that's a general tendency. Well, folks, this is the Truth and Liberty live call-in show, and uh, my guest today is David Barton, America's historian. Dave has the largest collection of original artifacts and documents from America's founding era outside the Smithsonian Institution, or at least we think he does. Uh, no one else has tried to claim the title. Uh, so uh, anyway, if you've got a question for Dave, call in. We're coming up on our, on our next break, but we've got one half hour left, so two minutes here. I've got time to get a question in, maybe not quite enough time to get it answered, but I want to go to Donna, who's holding on line one. Donna's a partner of the ministry. Thank you so much for calling in, Donna. What's your question for Dave Barton? Hi, guys. Um, David, I heard a little commercial or blip on um, the Internet, and you were talking about the Apollo, uh, you know, the Apollos that went to the moon. Mm -hmm. And you said something about that they left a Bible there and they did communion there. And I know this was back years ago, but um, could you say that again so I, I get the whole gist of it? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, on the moon landings with Apollo, uh, the, the Apollo was the, the three-man missions, and you had Mer Mercury was one-man space capsules, and then Gemini was two-man space capsules, and Apollo was three-man space capsules, and Apollo was about going to the moon. So you leave one, uh, one astronaut circling the moon in, in the, the command module, and you have two in the lunar module that goes to the surface of the moon. So the first time we sat down on the moon was Apollo 11. Apollo 11, uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin are there on the moon. And there was a period of time when the microphone and, and the communication went just basically dead back, back on Earth. And that was a period of time when Buzz Aldrin particularly was having communion, was not going to step out on the moon until he had had communion. Uh, they had timed it so that his church back in Houston was having communion the same time he was having communion on the moon. Wow. They did it silently because Madeleine Murray O'Hare had already filed a suit against NASA because back with Apollo 8, when Borman and other astronauts were circling the, the moon and, and circling Earth, uh, they, it was Christmas uh, of that year. And they read from Genesis in the beginning. God created, and they went through and read the, so the Dave, Genesis. So, Dave, I've got story. to jump in here. We've got to take a break right now for got 90 it. seconds. We'll finish this right after the break. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. This is a godly nation. It was founded upon godly principles, and the body of Christ needs to stand up against the rewriting of history. And in order for us to do that, we're going to have to learn true history. 
God is calling us to rebuild His house so that He can manifest His glory in the midst of a corrupt and pagan world. I would argue that America has been more prosperous, more successful than any other nation because we've done more in reading and applying the Bible. We chose God and we chose to live by the Bible. We've done things no other nation's ever done. When the God of the impossible lives in us, the entire political reality can shift where we walk. We're the ones that have the truth. We're the ones that stand up. It is the history for Christians to speak out and to make a difference in this nation. Well, we're back now on the Truth and Liberty live call-in show with David Barton as our guest. And uh, before we uh, finish up this answer on the Apollo mission, I just want to remind everybody, you just saw the ad there on our break for the Truth and Liberty conference. We're just a few days away. Dave is going to be uh, one of our speakers at this amazing event. So if you haven't registered yet, go on our website, truthandliberty.net, and it's a free event. Uh, it's going to be a powerful thing. And uh, I guarantee you will walk away from this recharged, refired, and better connected and able to fulfill God's plan for your life in our nation. So don't miss, it's gonna be fantastic. All right, Dave, we were talking about the Apollo mission and communion, and I don't remember exactly where you left off. Something about there was an interruption in communion and Madeline Murray O'Hare didn't want it to be broadcast. What happened? Yeah, so what happened was Madeline Murray O'Hare back with Apollo 8 had filed suit against NASA, claiming the violation of separation of church and state. Three astronauts orbiting the moon, um, they were uh, Apollo 8, and as they were doing so on Christmas Eve, they read out of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and they went through and, and, and read that, and she filed suit over that. She said, you can't read the Bible. This is a government program and separation of church and state. And of course, today, the court would have let them do that, but nonetheless, back then, that's when you had the hostile court, and, and so NASA said, look, we're already in a lawsuit with her. If we let people know we're having communion on the moon, we'll have a big lawsuit going. So what they did was they went dark for a period of time in the sense that they, they stopped the broadcast. It went silent, specified period of time. And so uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, had communion there on the, on the moon. Each astronaut going anywhere in space has their own uh, little bag of personal items they can bring. And so Buzz in his personal bag brought the chalice uh, brought the, the materials for communion. They timed it such that his church back in Houston was having communion at the same time. So that was Apollo 11. Um, you get to Apollo 13, they were sending Bibles to the moon. There was what's called the Apollo Prayer League. Back with Apollo 1, there was an explosion on the, the, uh, on the training area and three astronauts died at Apollo 1, never got off the ground, they had the explosion. And so staff at, at NASA said, we need to create prayer for these guys because this is dangerous stuff. So they created what's called the Apollo Prayer League. And for uh, these staff members, for every mission, they were praying. They had prayer going ahead of time during it throughout. And so the Apollo Prayer League came up with these Bibles that were kind of like microfilm. They're about the size of a baseball trading card, uh, but it had the entire Bible on that card. And so they were sending those to the moon on Apollo 13 to, to have a Bible on the moon. Apollo 13 had the disastrous uh, incident on the way to the moon, was able to get back to Earth, so the Bibles didn't make it. With Apollo 14, they sent, I think, 100 Bibles, 100 of these, um, these microfilm Bibles to the moon. Uh, they built an altar on the moon. They left one of those Bibles on the moon. They brought the others back. 
<laughs> we actually own one of the Bibles that was on the moon out of those hundred. Uh, so that's Apollo 14. But so many of the Apollo astronauts were just strong believers. Jim Irwin, his time on the moon, Apollo 15, changed him. He came back, became an evangelist. Charlie Duke, who was on Apollo 14, he has a terrific Christian ministry. Uh, so many of these guys, strong, strong believers, but a lot of fun stuff in the space program that people just don't hear about today. Wow, that's awesome, Dave. Well, I, I know I've been to your uh, museum there that you do with uh, Glenn Beck in the Dallas area, and you've actually got uh, the, the microfish Bible uh, there on display that they took uh, on Apollo 13. It's really awesome. Um, so the, the heavens really do declare the handiwork of the Lord, I suppose, right? With the Bible they left on the moon, that's pretty neat. Uh, so, so incredible, folks. These are some, that's one of the just little gems you get from Dave Barton and Wall Builders. I just want to do a little plug here, Dave, as um, we've got about 25 minutes left in the program. If you've got a question for Dave Barton, now's your chance. Call in to 719-619-2341. But Dave, your organization is called Wall Builders. It's based on uh, the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And you guys are always up to something big. What's going on these days at Wall Builders? Any new projects? Yeah, lots of new projects. Uh, we're trying to be what, what I would call transgenerational, not just oh, reach this I'm, generation. I'm so glad you put the orational on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, not transgender, transgenerational <laughs> generations. Okay. So not only reach this generation, reach future generations. So right here, th this is part of the facility where we have uh, behind me uh, this dress, this over here, this Mary Todd Lincoln's funeral dress. Uh, after the assassination of her husband. Uh, right here, a little further over, you see a desk that was in the House of Representatives. There were 23 civil rights bills passed between 1861 and 1876. That's a desk where many of those civil rights bills were passed. Um, this uh, over over my shoulder back here on this side is Teddy Roosevelt. So we, this is one of the areas of that museum where we have the stuff. So what we want is we want the next generation to know about this, to know the Apollo stories, to know all this great stuff that happened that we don't get taught today. So right here in this area throughout the summer, we have all sorts of training sessions. Uh, young people come in a week at a time, get really grounded in apologetics and biblical worldview get equipped to go back into college, 18 to 25 year olds we take, and some of them in graduate programs, doctoral programs, get really equipped with, with this stuff. Uh, we train teachers throughout the summer, particularly history teachers come in from all over the nation, from university presidents all the way down through fifth grade teachers, uh, train them in history. They get to see the stuff. They get to go back and, and, and tell a completely different story from what most Americans get today. Uh, we work with, with ministers particularly, uh, we, we have two sessions a year where we meet in Washington, D.C. for pastors' conferences, get, get acquainted with several of biblical godly members in Congress. Most people don't know they're there that get some warriors in Congress. So we're, we're training for the future, training for the next generation. Uh, in the same way, we're training through Rick Green, Patriot Academy. We're partners uh, raising up the next generation. We now have about 500 young people who have been through that program who are now in public office in some way, shape, fashion, or form. Uh, doing biblical citizenship courses across the nation, constitutional live training, have more than 10,000 constitution coaches across the nation teaching their communities about the constitution. So a lot of things where we work uh, ourselves at Wall Builders and with Wall Builders partners, there's just a lot of good stuff going on. And, and that's that's part of what we can offer. So you can go to the website, wallbuilders.com. We're actually changing out the website right now. We're getting it where that it's much more robust and a lot of the stuff around me will have the stories of those up. You can see the documents, some of those 
those items that Richard mentioned that we've got this big massive collection, but you can also get information on, on all these various training programs or seminars. We have what we call family seminars, uh, a two-day seminar here at the museum where that we go through one day and the next about 14 hours of teaching history from Columbus all the way through the moon landings and you get to see so much of the stuff. So those are some of the things we're doing, Richard. That's awesome. Well, now, folks, I just want to tell you uh, uh, that I have never seen David Barton take an offering or ask for money, but I, I do believe that your gifts could help Wall Builders further its mission. So be sure to donate and support this amazing work. Uh, let's get back to our callers now. We've got Randall on the phone from Colorado, uh, who's both a subscriber to Truth and Liberty and I think a Karis Bible College student. So, Randall, thanks for calling, bud. Yes, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And Richard, I was in your practical government class this morning. Okay, it. now I know who you are. Gotcha. Well, what's your question, brother? Yes, my question is to David. I just finished watching. I love all things documentary, historical, that kind of thing. And I just finished watching HBO series John Adams because I'd heard good things about it. My question is, in the, is it to David, it's, is, is it an accurate portrayal? Because I heard a lot of language thrown around about providence, about God, uh, and it was very emotional, very moving, but they never showed anybody actually praying or attending church. So I kind of had an issue with that. My question is, what does David has he seen it? What does he think of it? All right. Yeah, when you look at the HBO series, um, and, and, and that was based on David McCullough's book on John Adams, and th the thing that I think was good about the HBO series is it made John Adams a real person. It, 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 you, you saw his life. You saw what was going on around him, and you go, and instead of just being a guy on, on, you know, on currency or a guy on a poster somewhere, you saw a real guy, real life, real family, real issues. So I, I like that about it, that it, it makes these guys, instead of being just icons, they're actually people. And they, it's like Jesus has talked about and the scripture talked about, no temptation is taking you, but such is a common to man. I mean, they were average common people that did extraordinary things. Where HBO misses it particularly is on his faith. Um, because even though there was a head nod to God, you cannot read the letters of John and Abigail Adams and not find God mentioned in nearly every letter. Uh, maybe some aren't, but the overwhelming majority, and, and Abigail especially, boy, does she quote the Bible. I mean, she quotes it and quotes it and quotes it and quotes it. And John Adams, he's a, he called himself a church-going animal. Um, that's <laughs> what he called himself. So that's not the stuff that came through HBO, and that's reflective of HBO. They're a very secular company, very... Um, not traditional value company. And the fact that they at least portrayed John Adams in an accurate manner on the non-religious part of his life was helpful in making these guys, again, non-iconic. Uh, they are icons, they deserve to be, but at the same time, we relate to them better if they're people like we are. So that would be my, my answer on that is they missed the faith, they, they gave a head nod to it, uh, but they didn't reflect what you'll find in the writings of John and Abigail Adams. Hmm. 
Excellent. Uh, Dave, do you have a book that you recommend, a good biography on John Adams that uh, doesn't neglect the faith element? You know, interestingly enough, uh, John Adams, there, there's some good books out there, but what I would recommend, some of the best books out there, and, and I don't mean this to sound tedious, but if you go to books.google.com, that is the source of public domain books throughout history. And so when you recall that John Adams died in 1826, go back to 1827 and get a biography on John Adams and read it from back then, from people who knew him, who were around him at a time when we were a very God-centered culture. So if you look for John Adams in really early books like that, you get great biographies. John Quincy Adams' son, John Quincy Adams died in 1847. Man, 1848, there were two great biographies that came out on John Quincy Adams, one by the mayor of Boston, Josiah Quincy, and another by William Seward, who was a, a secretary of state. They're so good, and they're so wholesome, and they're so strong in the family and strong in the faith. So I think some of the best biographies actually are going, and you can download PDFs of these things and print them and read them. Um, there's no cost to them because they are public domain books. So look for early, early books shortly after these guys died, and you get some of the best stories and best accounts and, and best views of who they really are. And that's kind of what I'd recommend. It's a little harder than going to buy something from Amazon, but not much harder. So again, books.google.com, just put in John Adams and put in something like 1830 or 1828 or some year shortly after his death, you'll find some great books. Wow, that's a gem of advice right there. All right, so let's go now to our next caller, Judy from Colorado. Judy, you are on the line with David Barton. Yes, I would like to know how David and his son have obtained all these historical artifacts, uh, like the dress that's in the background uh, on Mary uh, Todd, Lincoln Todd. And how did they get them? Were they at auctions where they were offered or... It's just a question as um, how they got them. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, let me give a little background from, from my standpoint. I was a math and science teacher. I was a school principal, and I'm a guy who hated history. I absolutely despised history, didn't like it. I went through it in high school, college. It was the worst subject I've ever been through. I did not like it at all. Um, but I didn't know that what I was being taught was not what actually happened. And I'll just give an example. Um, in my case, I was in sixth grade. Now, I got some white hair, so I go back a few years, right? So I'm in sixth grade. We're talking now in the 50s and 60s. And my sixth grade history teacher told me, he said, George Washington had 26 illegitimate children giving new meaning to the phrase, Washington slept here. I'm in sixth grade, and I go, if that's the founding fathers, I don't think I'm interested. And so I, that was the kind of history I had, and it was really bad. But I didn't know that. I wasn't a history guru. I didn't know anything about history. So I just didn't like it. I was in math and science. Then once I'm principal, I came across two really old original historical documents that I had been taught about when I was in school. But when I read the actual documents, they were totally opposite to what school had taught me about those documents. So I'm looking at the real things saying, that's not what I was taught, but this is the original I was taught. And so that got me looking for originals. And so at that point, this is back now, we're, we're talking in, in the late 80s, no internet yet to speak of, nothing like that. And as I was speaking at places, I would stop at 
every old junk shop I could see, a, a Goodwill store, a, 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 an antique store, a secondhand store. And I would look for old items, old books, old documents, old artifacts. And I found some really cool stuff. Example, I bought a book from a guy named Hugh Williamson. I paid $13 for that book. So what? It, Hugh Williamson was a signer of the Constitution. But nobody has ever heard the name Hugh Williamson, so they didn't know who that was. So I got it for 13 books, books, 13 bucks. So we started collecting stuff. And then as we started collecting, people started hearing that we were collecting. And so there's a lot of people out there who make money by finding old stuff and selling it. And so they would call us and say, hey, we've come across this. Are you interested in this? Uh, got some amazing calls this week on some stuff from George Washington. Uh, that's not up for auction anywhere, but people who call, who have it say, hey, are you guys interested? And so there's probably 80 or 90 different auction houses now that call us when stuff comes up. There's individuals who call us. Uh, we get great stuff given to us. People said, hey, my father was in World War II. Here's all of his military stuff, his uniform, his maps, and this is what he did. He was on D-Day, et cetera, and we don't have a good way to preserve this stuff. You do. So we get a lot of stuff from a lot of people. We've been very blessed. So the answer is we get some of it from auctions, some of it just from gifts, some of it because we go out looking for some of the stuff. Um, this is such a real change from a guy who hated history to one who, when I get into it, I love the truth. And this is truth. And this is not what I was taught in school. It's not what most of our kids are being taught in school either. That's a... Uh... That's an awesome story, Dave. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And Judy, thank you for your question. Hey, uh, next, I want to go to Ami from Oklahoma. Uh, Ami, you are on the air with Dave Barton. What's your question today? Uh, yes, David. Kind of tying into what you just talked about being um, not correct teaching. What is the actual true meaning of separation of church and state, and how did it get so twisted? Yeah. Let me take you back to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is called the seed plot of the Bible. Every major teaching of our faith comes from Genesis. Everything starts there. So you start in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3, God creates the family. That's an institution. We recognize the institution of the family, the rest of the Bible. Genesis 9, God creates civil government. It starts Genesis 9, 4, he gives civil laws to Noah. They're called the Noahide laws. So God establishes government. Then as you get over into the last part of Genesis, first part of Exodus, God says, you know, I want a congregation that comes to the temple and worships, and here's what I want, and here's what I expect. And we would call that the church. That's the Old Testament type and shadow of the church. So three institutions all created by God, family, the, the church, the state, and the church. So those three are all God's institutions. As you get further into uh, Exodus and over into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you find that God is giving his people 613 laws on how to operate a new nation. So they've come out of Egypt. They've been in slavery 400 years. Now here's how I want you to operate. And so he gives them 613 laws, covers everything. It covers economics and criminal justice and immigration. It covers education, covers consanguinity, whatever. 613 laws, that's how they became the greatest nation in the ancient world. And as God sets it up, he says, okay, and here's what else I want. I want Moses over the civil stuff, and I want Aaron over the temple. So he doesn't have one leader over the temple and over government. He's got two leaders over two institutions. 
So if you want to say that's a separation of church and state. Now, God's over both. Neither one of them secular. He runs both of them. He tells you the rules for both of them, but he's got two different leaders. If you get over into Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, a king of Israel, very blessed by God. You read the scriptures. Um, God came to Uzziah's aid on so many occasions. And as you read, Uzziah had a lot of inventions. And, and I try to read it and imagine what they are. And one of them sounds like a Gatling gun for arrows. But he had all these things that caused him to be the superior military power. His catapults would go further than any other nations. So when nations came to attack him, he's pounding them with catapults before they ever get in range for him. Uh, his animal husbandry programs, uh, the agriculture, it's just fantastic. And so he is a God-fearing guy, and he's he wants to go into the temple and thank God for all the blessings God's given him. And so the scripture says that he went into the temple to offer sacrifices. Now, God made it really clear that the priests offered the sacrifices. That's way back. That's how he established it with Moses and Aaron. And the priest met him at the door, said, you can't offer sacrifices. That is the role of the priest. That is not the role of the king. He says, I'm the king. Don't ever tell me what I can and can't do. He pushes his way in. He offers sacrifices in violation of what God said. God struck him at the altar. He turned white, ran outside, had leprosy, died not long thereafter. So God made really clear, I want you to do it the way I told you. I have a separate leader over the state than I have over the church. In 391 A.D., Emperor Theodosius becomes the emperor of the world, Roman Empire of the world. He says, I'm a Christian, and here's the new deal. Every one of you are become a Christian, or I'm going to kill you. And so he made this edict that the entire Roman civilization has to all become Christians. Not your choice anymore. The government's going to tell you what to do with your faith. That's what started a wrong joining of separation church and state. One leader over both of them. It stays that way all the way through up until the American experience. When we come to America, the pilgrims come, they separated church and state. When the pilgrims got here in 1620, they had separate elections for their civil leaders and separate elections for their church leaders. They were elected differently. That's separation church and state. That's the way it's designed. It was designed so that the government could not tell the church what its doctrines were or what it had to do or how it could express its faith. That's what the Anglican Church did, which is where the English came from. The Americans came from the Anglicans. And the Anglican Church very simply said, look, I'm the king, I'm the queen. You'll do exactly what I tell you to do with faith. And because of that, there was an incident with the pilgrims. Uh, their pastor named John Greenwood, Pastor John Greenwood, he made Queen Elizabeth was the queen at that time. She's the daughter of Henry VIII who started the Anglican Church. Queen uh, John Greenwood said, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And Queen Elizabeth executed him for that and said, no, 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 I'm the head of the church. So the pilgrims mm -hmm. lose their pastor because he said that Jesus Christ is head of the church and she says she's the head of the church. That's the separation church and state they wanted. They wanted to be able to express their faith without the government telling them what they had to be. William Penn, who started Pennsylvania, he was a Quaker. They threw him in jail for over nine months because he attended the wrong church. The law says you have to attend the state-established Anglican church. He said, but I'm a Quaker. Well, you'll spend nine months in jail. And he went to jail four, five, six times, however many it was. So when they get to America, separation church and state means the government does not run religion. The government still honors God. It still acknowledges God. It does all the things God told it to do, but it does not tell people how to practice their faith. So when Jefferson used that separation of church and state phrase in 1802, 
is because he was in the primary state in America that still had a state-established Anglican church. Virginia was the last state to get rid of that state-established church. He said, look, in America, we have a separation church and state. The government is not going to interfere with your religious activities. And yet the government said, oh, you can't have prayer at schools. You can't have Bible schools. You can't have... Ten All the things separation church and state said the government couldn't do is what the government did in the name of separation church and state. So the original understanding goes back to, to those long two millennial and Jefferson articulated, as did other founding fathers, it's really clear. It doesn't mean you secularize the government. It means the government can't stop religious expressions in public because they're not the church, they're the state. So that's what it means. Out of that, we got a secular nation, which was never to design. Uh, that was 1947. The Supreme Court took Jefferson's phrase, reversed it, did not give the context, ignored his letter. It's a 233-word letter. They used only eight words out of his letter completely reversed it. That's how come separation church and state means you have to secularize things today. That was never the meaning. That's a brand new meaning. Hope that answers the question. Long answer. Sorry about that. I hope it explains it though. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ami, for your question. That's really good. Now, Jefferson was also the president who ushered in um, church meetings in the Capitol building. Am I right, That's Dave? Right. And he had the largest church meetings in the nation were going on under the dome in the Capitol while Thomas Jefferson was president. He attended the meetings. Uh, and then also, didn't uh, Jefferson uh, appropriate funds for supplying the Indians with Bibles um, and do some other things which today we would, we become so secularized we would, we would recoil at some of that, or I'm saying most Americans would. Yeah, Jefferson also authored the plan of education for Washington, D.C. public schools. He put the Bible in as the primary reading text in Washington, D.C. public schools. Jefferson authored the plan of education for the University of Virginia, a state university, in which he put religion and Christianity as part of the required courses there at the state university. That's amazing. He also, as you mentioned, uh, he used federal funding to send missionaries to the Indians. The Kaskasi Indians is a good example. Uh, there were several times in Congress when he was in Congress when he voted to give federal funding for missionaries to the Indians. It's just the government wasn't doing it. They weren't stopping it. They were facilitating it, but they're not controlling it. And Jefferson was really big in that. Actually, not only was there a church going to the Capitol, under Jefferson, they also started having church services every Sunday at the Treasury Department and the War Department, as well as in the Supreme Court. So there's no secularist in Jefferson. Uh, he That's just amazing. made sure the government didn't control the religious activities, and that was separation, church, and state. Powerful. All right. Well, we have. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, we've got about four minutes left in the show. I want to go to Kirk from Washington. Uh, Kirk, you are on the air. What's your question today, sir? Hey, um, I'm wondering if Christians should prosper. Um, I'm not able to get ahead of this thing, and when I hear teaching about it, it um, makes me feel bad from time to time. So, yeah. Um, All right, so should Christians prosper? Dave, you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, tough, tough question. Uh, I would answer it differently. I would say it's irrelevant whether Christians prosper to the degree that what is most relevant is that we seek God and follow His Word. Mm -hmm. And wherever that leads us and what it produces is what we want. Um, so if you, you don't want to seek the fruits, you want to seek the fruit tree. And so a lot of Christians will take this or that or follow after. What produces that? It's not the fruit. You want the fruit tree because you've got that 
continual production. So you want to pursue God. You want to pursue his word. You want to try to obey everything it says everywhere you can. And whether it is prosperity or anything else, you don't pick and choose the fruit you want. You want the whole tree. You, you want everything that's there. So the answer is I, I, I'm not going to say that it's wrong or right to seek prosperity. It's right to seek God's word. And there's all sorts of things, Joshua 1.8, that if we obey his word, we'll prosper. Now, does that mean economically? Could. It sure means spiritually. It could mean lots of different ways. Prosperity doesn't have to be defined by material belongings, possessions, or finances. So I want my marriage to prosper. Doesn't mean I've got a ton of money in marriage. It means I've got a good relationship with my I want my relationship with my kids to prosper. I want my relationship with my country to prosper. So prosperity, I wouldn't define it just in material things. There's a lot of spiritual things as well. But I would say the objective is not seeking prosperity. It's seeking God. It's seeking his word. It's seeking to obey and do what he tells us to do. And then the fruits will come, whatever those fruits are. Yeah, good. I, I just want to jump on real quick here and throw my two cents in on this, Kirk. Thank you for your question. Um, God does want his children to prosper, I think, as any good father does. And part of the question is, what is prosperity? He wants you to have enough and extra. He wants your needs met and he wants you to have enough uh, to give. Uh, the, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says he gives seed to the sower and bread to eat. So yeah. he gives enough for you to, cons for, to meet your needs and for you to sow. Uh, so that you, uh, when you sow that seed, it'll multiply and increase. So giving and generosity is a key aspect of prosperity. 3 John 2 says, I wish above all things, uh, brothers, that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So internal prosperity and external prosperity are both God's will. But the, the thing about it that trips us up is that we're not to seek money or wealth or riches. We are yep. to seek the will of God. Jesus said in um, Matthew chapter uh, uh, 6, verses, I, I think it was around 30 to 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So it's a matter of priority. Put God's will first in your life. And, and once you get aligned with his righteousness and his will, that prosperity is going to follow, brother. So That's thank right. you so much for your question. There's a lot more to be said on that. I want to recommend to you Andrew's yep. teaching. Go on awmi.net and you can find a bunch of teaching on prosperity, especially Andrew's series on, um, it's called Financial Stewardship. And it's a really balanced, uh, great, great teaching on finances and prosperity. And uh, so thank you for your call. Dave, thanks for being on the show today. This has been awesome, a real treat for me. And uh, I've learned a lot. So that's awesome. And uh, I know our viewers have too. Guys, be sure to check out the Wall Builders website. Be sure to register for the Truth and Liberty Conference, which is next week, as Dave Barton is going to be joining us along with so many others. And it's going to be a conference you will not want to miss. And thanks so much for watching the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. Uh, we really appreciate your support. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe today, and we'll see you guys again soon. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.